Well, welcome back for another week. Our learning is dedicated for all those in need. We left off last week with a little bit of a, uh, a cliffhanger. The question was, what was Yiftach thinking when he made his pledge to God? Uh, it seems to be very dangerous. The promise that whatever comes out of his door, he's going to bring as a carbon. We're going to try to understand that a little bit better today. Uh, but before that, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is Yiftach's gift, the superpower, if you will? What is it that pushes him over the top and makes him such a successful leader? Um, and that's, I think, something that we have to try to understand just a little bit about. It sounds like, on the one hand, you could argue that Yiftach is just a super strong uh, warrior. Not quite Shimshon-like, because he doesn't operate by himself. He certainly works uh, in the con- with other people. But he's the leader of a strong group of people that are able to rout Amun. Okay, so that that is one possibility. Perhaps... Perhaps that's not really an accurate picture of Yiftach. Perhaps there is a little bit more to it. And for that, I think we have to look carefully. See, in Yiftach's dialogue with Amun, which is quite long, how many times does he mention Moab? And how many times does he mention Amun? And why does he mention Kemosh, who's the god of Moab, when he's talking to the people of Amun? What, in fact, is his strategy? So perhaps the possibility, which I saw... Um, either by Rabbi Alex Israel or Dr. Ellie Mermelstein, uh, who has a, an, a fascinating article in Mitocha Ohel, which is uh, YU's uh, safer that they put out on the Haftorahs. He's a uh, Tanakh uh, teacher in, in YU. They argue that Yiftach's gift, Yiftach's strength, is that he, he knows how to leverage his words properly. Um, perhaps you could argue that the best way to explain it is he's a smooth talker. He understands how it is to say things in such a way that will get people to listen. Why is he mentioning Moab in the context of his discussion with Amon so many times? It's like seven or eight times that Amon is only mentioned once. Why does he mention Kamosh, the god of Moab, as opposed to talking about Amon's gods? Because the message that he's delivering to the people of Amon is you don't matter. You think that you're such a significant nation? It's not true. You're really not much of anything. And Moab, your your brother, they're the real power players. You guys, you barely matter to us. That's what he's saying. And so if we accept the fact that his gift is his power of speech, I think we have to kind of hold that in the back of our head as we continue with our parrot. So let's continue with Pasuk Lamed. So Yiftach makes a nether. He swears to God and says, if I win and God gives me these people Amon in my hands, whoever comes out of my house, when I come back from defeating Amon peacefully, meaning I will return in peace, and I will bring him, or I will bring it 
as an Ola to Hashem. Now that's a very loaded pasuk because the question is, we have, which we're going to have to try to understand a little bit, is what did he actually expect to come out of the house? I want you to think about that for a little bit as we continue to read the pasukim. But what was what was his intent? He must have had something in his head. Ah, oh, I believe that the following is going to happen. An animal is going to come out of my door. Makes sense. But is that really in fact the case? He wins. He does quite a significant job. If we if we flip back to the uh, map on the previous page, so what do we see? We see Aroer all the way to Evel Kramim. And what happens? In between there, that is Eretz Bnei he conquers the 20 cities along the lines there. And the, the children of Ammon are humbled in the eyes of uh, the Jewish people or in the with the Jewish people. He comes back to Mitzpah, which is where his house is. And who comes out of his door? It's it's his daughter comes out with with drum with tambourines and with mecholot another type of of instrument or perhaps there's dancing going on it's good stuff everything is wonderful except he this is the only kid that he has and because. And Enomi Manu Benubad. She she is not married, so she has no children. So what happens? She's going to be lost. Now the Mincha Ketana points out Iraqi Yechidas to tell us that there's no suffix at all. She is the only one that walks out of the door. Meaning it's not that two people walked out of the door and he could say, Well, no, I don't know. Who really came out of the door first? Maybe it was the other one that came out first. No, no. It is clear as day that the one that came out of the door. First and only is Yiftach's daughter. So when he sees her coming out, he tears his clothing. So he says, "I, my daughter, look what's look what has befallen us. Oh my, this is so terrible, and uh, and I promise God this, but and I can't go back." Says like you gotta do it. You made a promise, you gotta keep your word. So, you know, I, I accept my fate. So she says to her father, but I ask for one thing. I pay me many shnayim kodashim. Give me two months. And I will go down to the mountains. Strange, going down to the mountains. Um, generally, one goes up to the mountains. And and let me go and cry about my, my virginity, me and my friends. So that's also a question. If she thinks that she's going to die, why is it that that's what she's crying about? One would think that she would cry about the loss of her life. So you could argue that perhaps her what she's crying about is the fact that there's no continuity. 
but she doesn't have any children. And Yiftach will have no grandchildren. So she's crying about the loss of continuity of her family. But that I think that that question, though, perhaps leads the Mepharshim to wonder what, in fact, Yiftach actually does there in the end. So he gives her permission. And he sends her for two months. And she and her friends go and they cry about her virginity on the mountain. Two months pass. She comes back to her father. He does fulfill his nether as he had uh, as he had promised. And she did not have any contact with a man. She does not have any children. And this was a chok amongst the Jewish people. So what does that mean? It was a chok amongst the Jewish people. So, great question. So Radak says the chok was that the... Um, the Benot Yisrael, which is going to be in the next Pasuk, would come and they would cry about her fate. That was the Chok. Rashi says, Chok, The Chok was that this would never be done again. They made, they, the made a Gezerah that you can't make such a promise. I have a note in my uh, in my Navi, and I have no idea where um, where this came from, the source. But I think it's a great idea also. What is a Chok? So we have different types of mitzvah. We have mitzvah. What's a mitzvah? A mitzvah is something that, that I have to do. Some mitzvah are logical. Don't kill. If I kill, it's bad for society. Okay, so I know that we don't need the Torah necessarily to have such a mitzvah. It would be there no matter what. You have other mitzvah that are, let's say, the zecher. Why do I Pesach? All the stuff around Pesach. They don't necessarily have like a logic, a rhyme or reason to them, but I can tie them into the story. I eat matzah because it is derech avdu slash derech You sit in a sukkah, keep a sukkah to shafti pnei yourself. There are things that we do le'edut. But then there's the third type of mitzvah. That, that type of mitzvah is a chot. And those are the hardest ones to understand because there really is no rhyme or reason. There's nothing that we can connect it to. It just is. And the thing is that the way it works is that God expects us to follow those chukim, even though we can't sit there and understand them. Paraduma being pra- probably the most famous of all. So the note I have written here is the whole story is a chok. It's inexplicable. How could it have come to this? And maybe that's what the Torah is telling us. That he hopefully be Yisrael. This whole story Everything that surrounds Yiftach is somewhat of a hope. It's illogical. It doesn't make any sense. We can't understand why it is. The Abarvanel points out an interesting thing. He says that um, she went up to the mountains and she lived there for two uh, for two for two months. So he says the Kavanati Shemizelam do umot. Edo, that from here the Umot Edo, the Romans, the Christians learned they had this idea of women going out, it's the monastic life of living secluded from everyone. 
And they would not see men during their lifetime. It's an interesting, interesting uh, possibility. The 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 the, the parak ends off. So from then on, it was a yearly thing. Interestingly, miyamim yamima actually only comes up five times in Tanakh, um, of which this is one. We have it by the Korban Pesach. We have it, which we'll, we'll delve more in depth at the beginning of Shmuel Aleph, that Elkanah goes up to uh, to the, the Mishkan, to Shiloh, miyamim yamima. So we'll explore that a little bit there, but it is interesting to try to understand what it means, miyamim yamima. So the Mitzvah's David says, miyamim yamima All of her life, they would go up year in, year out, which means that she didn't die. And for these four days, what would they do? They would go there, and they would try to make her feel better, relieve a little bit of her pain, and to re- help her rejoice. And there were four days, whether they were four days straight or four days throughout the year, not really sure. So that is the opinion of the Mitzvah's David. The Malbim said, And afterwards, they would sit, sit with her in isolation. Says the Malbim, I think Pshat is that she wasn't killed. So what is that? Meaning that the Pshat is they sit with her and they they console her. They talk to her. They they take a little bit out of her hitbodadut, of her isolation. Malbim says Chazal, not Pshat, but Chazal say that they went there, they, they sang these keynote. These dirges, they sang sad songs with her, about her, about her death. Why is it four days? Says the Mincha Kitana, beautiful pshat. It is the four days are in order to um, commemorate or to to feel for the pain of her father, Yiftach, and his loss. Yiftach's wife, her mother, and her loss. Bat Yivtach and her loss, and anybody that wanted to marry her, there was the loss there as well. And so we have a very, very strange story that leaves us with probably more questions than answers. What was Yiftach thinking? What was in his head? Why is this? Why did they have to? Why would he even have thought in the first place it was a good idea to make this promise? And he could get out of this promise. There was no way. And our promise is a good thing. In fact, we know that in Tanakh there are promises. Yaakov promised that if Hashem, if Hashem made him successful, he would bring, he would give, I'll give a tenth of my stuff to God. B'nai Yisrael at Charma, in, Bamid, in Sefer Bamidbar, they say to God, if we win the war, everything goes cheyrem. So it sounds like this is normal practice. Tanakh doesn't tell us that Yaakov was bad or that the Jewish people were bad. So why is it that Yiftach um, is not really painted in the right way? And to make it even, I think, worse, or to make it even clearer, to highlight the point, let's take a look at the Medrash on the screen. Why Yiftach? So the, the Medrash says the following. Arba, hey, 
There were four people that made promises, and their promises were improper. For three of them, God actually delivers. He makes it work out in the end. It has a happy ending. One has a sad ending. So Eliezer says, the girl that will come and offer me water, she's the right girl. So what would have happened if a, a, a maid would have come out? Someone from poor lineage, poor stock. Sounds like he would have had to marry. He would have had to agree to her marrying Yitzhak. He messed up, but God makes it work out okay. We learned this at the beginning of, of Sefer Shot. He said, whoever conquers Kiryat Sefer, um, and I will give my son, my daughter, Achsa, to him as a, as a wife. A slave could have been the one to win. Yet, Hakadosh Baruch Hu gave him someone proper. His daughter marries Pali. Shaul Amar vayayish shayaker yas yash yashrenu amelch osher gedolov v'pitel. So pitel olisha. Shaul says the same thing. He says, whoever can, whoever can, whoever uh, defeats Goliath, I'll make very wealthy, and they will have my daughter as a wife. Ailu yatzakushi yachado ove kochav mechado evet. The kavyanu tell lo v'pitel. It sounds like if. A kushi, a, a idol worshiper, or a slave had come out, they would have gotten Notain Lobito, he would have gotten the daughter. And yet God gave it to them Kahogan properly. So what does Yiftach say? Yiftach says, Whoever comes out, I will bring as an Ola Tashem. So it sounds like what what would have happened if a donkey, a dog, or a cat would have come out? But God does not do right by him. There is no happy ending. And the question is, why is that? Before we answer that, I'd like to I'd like to share with you that our story certainly has echoes to other stories as well. The first echo is we have the word yechida. She is Yechida. It's only the fourth time in Tanakh that we have the word Yechid. And we have Yechid there is, uh, is, is focused on the Akedah. It's We have a similar language here. There's a time delay. They go for three days. Here it's for two months. They go up to the mountains. Right? Avram goes up to the mountains. The, the daughter of Yiftach goes to the mountains. Um, the Orachayim, though, points out the time delay is not really exactly correct because go right away. There's no time delay. Adam doesn't say, listen, Give me a couple days so that I could I could spend some time with my child. We can say our proper goodbyes. He goes out right away. Yes, it takes three days to get there. That is true, but that was not necessarily the intent. And so we have echoes to Yaqid. We also have echoes to Billah. There's the Moab connection. We obviously 
plays in a lot for the story. Balak ben Sipor Melech Moab. There's negotiations. There's back and forth. There's a nation afraid to seek, a, and there's a nation who's afraid that seeks a powerful helper. Moab looks for Bilam, and it is the Jewish people that look for Yiftach. And interestingly, the word Shuv. Shuv comes six times by Yiftach and five times by Bilam. Okay, so again, when you have echoes to another story, we have to see, is there a way that we could possibly tie them into each other? This is, let's just say, the door the Yiftach's tent. The question is, what's Yiftach thinking will come out? Does he assume it will be a sheep? Does he have any thought that his young daughter will come out of there? Which one is it? And I think that that's something that we have to try to understand. Because I think, certainly from my recollection of, of learning this as a child, it's a little gray, a little bit spotty. Fifth grade is uh, is quite a while from from now, but I think and and when I taught it also for one year, I think the same thing. I think the general gist of it is that Yiftach, the way we that we explain Yiftach is that Yiftach expected an animal to come out of his house, and then shockingly, his daughter comes out, and so when he cries. He's crying that he can't believe. I, I never would have thought that this is what would have happened. And if I would have thought that this would happen, I would never have made the nether in the first place. Now, anybody that's familiar with the idea of a nether knows that is the very definition of, hat of hatarat nedarim. When you look to be matir a nether, to untie a nether, to get rid of a nether, the question is that we're asking the person is, is if you knew that this is a totsa'a, if you knew that this is what was going to happen, would you have made this nether? And if the answer is, no, I wouldn't have made the nether, then the nether is a nether that's made bitta'ut, and you could be matirat very easily. And so that leaves us with a little bit of a question. So possible ways to understand the story. So number one, we could suggest perhaps that Yiftach is, and maybe this is why he's successful, he's impulsive. Because he's impulsive, he's able to jump to do certain things. He, everybody else is afraid, and he's willing to jump in to do it without a problem. He's willing to fight the, um, the nation of Ammon. Scary, but he's impulsive. It doesn't, he doesn't have time to think about the fear. I used to play a game with my class where you would put two students against each other. You would ask, a, you, would, you would say a word, I would have to translate it. And whoever hit the desk first was the first the one that got the um, the first crack at answering what the, what the word was. And the goal was to see who can get the most in a row. We would hold on for the year, who was a champion of the year, six, seven, 10, 12, 13. But if you had a kid that was on a row, four or five in a row, and you wanted to try to knock them off, if you put up an impulsive kid, they usually were able to beat that. Why? Because the impulsive kid will hit the desk before they hear the word. So I'm going to be saying the word. They hit the desk and they're hearing me finish the word and they're able to answer it. And a non-impulsive kid needs to actually wait, hear the word, know for sure that they know the word, and then hit the desk. It takes a lot longer. And perhaps, perhaps that is why Yiftach does what he does. And if that's the case, then you'd understand why he actually keeps the nether also, because he's motivated by his emotion rather than thought. Spontaneous, based on desires, whims, or inclinations. He does not think, wow, I could actually get away out of this. 
Another possibility, and this I believe is Dr. Ellie Mermelstein, is he has nothing to say. Even though Yiftach is a man of words, and that is where he's successful, he is able to negotiate with Amon. He's able to speak to Amon. He's run out of words. He has nothing left to say. Because he has nothing left to say, he's done. That's another possibility. And so he, his words trip him up, but he doesn't have the wherewithal to get out of uh, the mess that his words put him in. That's another possibility. There is a, a third possibility, and this is a possibility that I think we have to like kind of unpack a little bit more. There's my way and there's God's way. And often, we hope that my way and God's way are the same. question is, what happens when my way is this and God's way is that? What should happen is a person says, I acknowledge that my way is the wrong way. God's way is the right way. And therefore, I'm going to realign or refocus my direction. Instead of going this way, which is my way, as was there that way, which is God's way, I turn my way into God's way. That's something that I think we have to try to understand a little bit. And then there is another possibility, and that's the idea of buy now and pay later. And that is actually perhaps how we could understand um, the idea of a neder in general. The idea of a neder is that a person says, God, I, I don't have anything right now. I'm about to go out to Haran, Yaakov. We're about to go out to war, the Jews with Karma. I'm about to go out to war with Ammon, Yiftach. I have nothing. My account is empty. But I need to do something that will be so significant that you, God, will look favorably towards me. Buy now, pay later. I'm doing is, I'm buying a victory on the promise of paying later. I'm going to do something huge. I'm going to offer you something big in order for the hope that later on you're going to feel good about. You'll you'll take payment later. So Yaakov says, God, listen, I hope that you'll help me be successful. And when I come back, I'm going I'm to give you 10%. That's a big deal. Karma, we're willing to forego all the spoils of war. God save us. Buy now, pay later. Yiftach felt the same way. So the thing is, this is where Yiftach gets himself in trouble. Yiftach says that the only way my buying power actually matters is if I keep my word. If I don't keep my word, but if later when it comes time to pay, I'm like, God, if I would have known it was that kind of payment, I would never have agreed to those terms in the first place. Buy now, pay later. Yiftach says, I can't, I can't renege, I can't go back on my word. And that is a much more powerful argument than the idea of being impulsive. Yiftach is a man of his words. Maybe, maybe even he's a man of his words. Yiftach doesn't want to go back because then what does that do? Puts him in a place where his word doesn't matter. His word has no value. And so that's a possibility. But I want to I want to check back in on the idea of my way or God's way. So let's take a look at a terrible, terrible, terrible story. This is from Malachim. So the king of Moab sees that the war is very, very strong. It's very hard. 
And so he takes 700 sword-carrying men to beat the king of Edom. He can't. He takes his son, the one that is going to rule in his place, and he he brings him up as a carbon on the walls of the city. Wow. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? He is willing to bring up his son as a carbon. What is the whole nature? How exactly does animal, does child sacrifice work, human sacrifice work? We'll explain that in just a little bit in a moment. But let's take a look at Pasuk Lamed and Lamed Aleph again. If I win, and if I win, he who comes out of the door, right? That I yasher yitzay. If he who comes out of my door when I return in peace, da'yal Hashem alitihu lola. I'll bring him as a. I'll bring. He will be brought as a sacrifice. That Mikra says asher yitzay likrati doesn't as I have to be a person. Efshar lomar kach gam al vale chayim. You can say it also on animals. Kakatu vinek fira rayot shoeg likrato. As we're going to learn in just in just two weeks, when we when we get to Perek Yudalim in in Shoftim by Shimshon, he says that the uh, it says that the uh, the lion was roaring towards him. Likrato could be an animal, but Rabbi Hatton points out that in the nearly hundred times in Tanakh that we have the word Likrato Yitzay Likrato that combination. There is only one exception where it's an animal. It's always a person. That is mind blowing because that tells you that when Gido, when Yiftach says, if I win, he who comes out of my door when I return in peace will be brought as a sacrifice, he knew his intent was that an animal was not going to be coming out, it was going to be a person coming out of the door. Question is, who is that person going to be? This le- bottom left picture, if you're if you're able to look at the uh, the screen, is a scene from Madagascar two. It is when Melnit, the giraffe, is willing to be sacrificed to his death. If you take a look around there, obviously that's a huge fire. He's going to fall into there. And the video clip of it is everybody's worked up into a frenzy. They're all getting super excited because the thought is that when he's sacrificed, what will then happen? Everyone else will survive. He's going to, everybody else will be blessed with the goodness of the gods because this kid, will, this one individual will be sacrificed. What was Melech Moab thinking? What is Yiftach thinking? He's thinking that if, I'm saying to God, what is the ultimate gift I can give you? I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to do an Akedas Yitzchak. And he doesn't have his daughter in mind. He thinks it's going to be someone else. But I'm willing to give a human up to you, God. That is how much I'm committed to making this work. It's an assimilation, says Rabbi Hatton, of the Kanani culture so deeply rooted in the Jewish people. That is what happened. 
And that is quite the terrible tragedy. And that would explain where Yiftach goes wrong. Yiftach is, in a certain sense, he he's he's fallen to the point where ushered into the existence of the Jewish people is very, very much the idea of Kenani culture. Remarkably, God grants Yiftach unexpected victory and he returns home flushed with excitement. This is how Rabbi Hatton paints the picture. The accolades of the people are still ringing in his ears as he expectantly retraces his path towards his beloved homestead. In the distance, he can hear the rhythmic beating of the drum and the sound of song, and he absentmindedly wonders, who might it be that has come forth? God was pleased with my vow, he remarks as he draws closer, and now I must repay him with joy. God is pleased with his vow because he won the war. But soon the figure is recognizable, her sweet voice suddenly familiar, and Yiftach falls to the ground, doubled over in grief. How unexpected was the victory against the Ammonites, but how unexpectedly has merriment turned into tragic into tr- tragic and indescribable mourning. His only daughter, how innocent her smile was when a moment ago, attempts to raise him up. His other family members rush to the side, but no one can make out the incoherent cries that issue forth, now punctuated by heartbreaking sobs. This is the picture of what Yiftach is. Slowly he regains his composure, then he silently declares the vow to God. Cursed be the day that it ever be pronounced. Cursed be the people who countenance such things must be fulfilled. My promise to God must be fulfilled. Silence falls upon the family now, swelled by numbers by all the concerned onlookers who have hardly come in response to the commotion. All eyes are upon Yiftach's daughter, his only child, and truly his most beloved thing in the entire world. Her drum lies in the dust where it has fallen when she ran to greet her father as he collapsed and her young and shapely shoulders still draped in the brightly colored robe that she has especially donned for her father's return now seems stooped and hollow. Through her eyes, though her eyes brim with tears, her voice is soft and comforting. Father, you have made a, God, a vow to God. Therefore do to me that, that what you declare since God has performed great vengeance upon your enemies, B'nai Amon. That is a hat. How horrible is it? Could you imagine the father agreeing to this? But could you imagine the society that allows this? No one has anything to say. No one comments. Unbelievable. So the question is, Yiftach, why didn't he do Hatarat Midarim? Yiftach comes, his name, his very name suggests Yiftach, Koteach. That is the idea of Hatarat Nidarim is Pukhim Neder. You open up the Neder. Why? Is it that he's stupid? Is that what it is? He's willing to sit there and, and hurt himself? Or is it the second possibility? He's so arrogant that he refuses to go. And Chazal, a lot of a lot of the opinions in Chazal are just that. Yiftach was too haughty. He refused to go and have a conversation with Pinchas, and as a result, he lost his daughter. But perhaps there's another possibility, and that is the idea that he had. No, he felt that he had no choice. He felt that he had to do this. He felt that anything else would be backing out on the only reason why he won in battle in the first place. We'll end this part of the parak, and then we have to actually cover the real parak for today. Parak that. What happens to his daughter? So there is an opinion or opinions that she actually was killed. But the more common approach 
is that of most of the Mepharshim, and that is that she lived on a mountain wall by herself and probably supported by the fact that her cries are about her betulai, that her, the loss of her virginity, and the fact that it seems like the people go uh, maybe even to come to be with her along the way. There is no question that the message, the message of this sad piece at the end of Yid Aleph is look where the Jewish people have come. But Neil Ben Knaz at the beginning with a Shamgar break. Then we have before Gido or after Gido and we have another break. And now we have another break. There seems to be a Yerida Tadoro. Each show fate goes lower and lower and lower. So sad. Let's take a look at Parag Yudbet. We're going to try to finish Yudbet um, in, in just a few moments. It's not a very long Parag and it's certainly not full of much information, but it's nonetheless an important ending to Yiftach. The, the uh, people of Ephraim come up north. Makes sense. If you remember on the first map, the Jewish people were to the north of Ammon in Mitzpah, Gilad. They come up to him. Probably the story happens right after the war, before the two months and everything else that happens. Uh, why didn't you call us to war? We should burn your house. says to them, Yiftach says, really? Come on. We are in the middle of a big war. We did what we had to do. Um, says the Malbim, though, he, he says, I have three three arguments on you. First off, this is my personal battle. No, 18 years we were suffering. Where were you for that time? And I cried out for help. And you didn't answer. And I risked my life. I was one that was willing to sacrifice that Why are you coming to fight me today? You had your moment. You had 18 years to join the battle. You, did. you had, when I called out, my clarion call to battle, you didn't come out. Leave me alone. He gathers up all the people from Gilad. He fights Ephraim. And they they destroy, they decimate Gilad. The Anshe Gilad decimate Ephraim. He conquers. Um, the people of Gilad take over the Mabrote Yardain, the crossing over the Jordan that would take him to the land of Ephraim. When the, when the people of Ephraim wanted to cross over, they would say, Are you an Ephrati? They would say, No. And they would say to them, they would say, we want you to say the word shibolet. And they would say shibolet. And they, they were not able to, to say those words. 
and they were they were decimated, absolutely decimated by Paul Bay Tame Ephraim Arbay Mishlaim Elif, and forty two thousand Jews died. Forty two thousand Jews. It should be noted that at this point in time we have not had this many Jews die in the entire book, and forty two thousand Jews died in a civil war. Is there any significance to the Sibolet, the Shibolet? Does it matter? What are we supposed to do with it? So, there is, the Radak says that Shibolet, Sibolet, it's just, it's just a word, just a word, there's a sound that the people of Menashe could make, and it couldn't be done by the, the people of Ephraim. The Radak even points out that there are that, that in French there are there's a sound that they can't make um, the sh sound and Google actually uh, seems to agree with that and they would pronounce it a different way so that's a possibility but I think Rav Yigal Ariel's take on this is actually interesting he says it seems like it's just a word you needed a sh word and so that's what they use perhaps actually um, addresses the heart of the, the debate between them. Chachamim kashur devitul is shibolet hanar. Shibolet is from the, the shibolet hanar, the, the, the powerful uh, push of the water down the river. And they viewed that that was the the sign of the Bnei Yosef that are blessed like the, the fish. And similarly, the shibolet, the, the, the stalks, um, the bundles of wheat out in the field also represent Yosef. The whole Yosef story Starts and ends with the Shibolet, his dreams to the brothers, and the end, what he does with Paro, his sheets. Chazal Dore, or Darshan, the changing of the pronunciation of Shibolet to Sibolet, ain't Sibolet Elo Shonavoda Zarak, Adam Shomerla Havero, Sabal. Menashe makes the argument the fact that they can't say Shibolet. They can't say what we represent. The idea of the water, the idea of plentiful, the idea of the agriculture, but their lives have turned to what? Instead, a Shibolet. That's the end of it. That's a possibility of the significance of these words. But nonetheless, we do have to ask ourselves, what was Yiftach thinking? He kills 42,000 people. Why does Yiftach react differently than Gidon? So one possibility is Ephraim joined Gidon in the end. But, but Ephraim never joined with Yiftach. So they deserve to be punished. 42,000 people, ouch. That's a pretty significant punishment. Okay, that's one possibility. Negative, though, is he knows how to win wars. Might know how to talk, how to smooth talk people, but he doesn't know diplomacy. He knows how to 
talk is not to talk to people. That's perhaps the understanding of the story. But I think the most important thing is to recognize that this is where the Jewish people have fallen. They end up in civil war, 42,000 people die, and just the story goes on. And so, he judges the Jewish people for six years, and he, he, he dies, and he's buried in the cities of Gilad. Mitsudas David says, He's buried in, the, in one of the cities, amongst the cities of Gilad. But perhaps another possibility is that they take a bone and each a different part of him is buried in each of the different cities in the area Gilad. The Chazal tell us that his punishment, his punishment for for uh, allowing his daughter to die the way she did, is that he he died a slow, painful death with his limbs being left in different places. The Manhattan suggests that uh, even in his burial, he failed to achieve achtut. There was no unity amongst the Jewish people. And so I know that this is a little bit long, but let's let's finish the parak. We've got just a couple of psukim left, and I know with uh, with yet with Shimsho next week, we're going to need every bit of time we have next week. The next judge comes from is Ivtsan, who's from Beit Lechem. And he had 30 sons and 30 daughters. His 30 daughters he sent outward. They married other people. And 30 daughters he brought in to marry his sons. And he was judged for seven years. Where is uh, where is this Beit Lechem? Beit Lechem. He's buried in Beit Lechem. Now, there is a northern Beit Lechem, and of course, there's the famous Beit Lechem that we know, which is the Beit Lechem Yehuda near Kever Rachel. Next comes Elon Azvuluni. He's judged for 10 years. Elon Zvulun, all the way up north. Next is the next judge is Avdon ben Hillel, who's a Piratoni. Piraton is a city up north. He has 40 sons and 30 great grandsons. And the, the 70 of them went on 70 donkeys. And he judged for eight years. It feels again like very much like Yair Hagiladi. It's in Harafrayim up north. Okay, so it sounds like, so far, all of these judges are northern judges. So who's Ivtan? Is Ivtan a northern judge, or is he returning to the southern kingdom, to Yehuda? It's a great question. So Chazal tell us Ivtan is Boaz. Boaz, whose story we know very, very well from Megillat Ruth, is from Yehuda. So is that really the story? So that's what the, the Redak says. But here be Nike. So he says, I don't know. But I want you to know that I think that the story is put here in order to highlight the fact that Ivtan had all these kids, 60 kids. He had 60 weddings. And in all of them, he did not 
invite Manoach once. But Fishaya Akar, he was an Akar. How will this guy ever pay me back? Can you imagine? He says, how will he ever be able to pay me back? He's not going to make a wedding. He's not going to invite me. So why should I put him on my guest list? And as a result, all 60 of these kids died in his lifetime. He accepted the, the death, and that's why he becomes a uh, a judge. He says, but I don't know, that seems to be a pretty wild explanation. It's more likely that the reason why it tells us about his 60 sons, 60 children, is to tell us how super successful he was. And as a result of his success, he what? He was Zoha to be a Shofi. I, yesh yesh. Both of them are possibilities. But perhaps, 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 buried in this Radak is two ways to look at Ivtsan. Is Ivtsan Boaz? And Boaz is the most compassionate person we know in Tanakh who's written about in one of the most compassionate read uh, stories in all of Tanakh, maybe. And then there's a ray of hope. Look, there's the possibility. Well, maybe you have an Ivtsan who makes 60 weddings and doesn't once think about how he can include his neighbor, Manoah. Which one is it? Not really sure. It could be either one. And that's the... That's the challenge and that's the struggle when you learn safer shofar is that there's always this possibility to find a ray of hope. And yet at the same time, there's also the fact that it just seems like the Jewish people are on the precipice, ready to fall into the deep abyss. Which one is it? Next week, we'll continue with Parag Gimel. We will introduce Shimshon who is probably the most complicated of the judges. He gets four proxies, also one of the longest of the judges. Um, but the story of Shimshon is very challenging. And for those that learned with me in the past, you should just know, it's like an amazing moment because when we learned the first time through Sefer Shoftim, the Manhattan did not have the, uh, the prokim out on Shimshon. So for the first time, we'll really be able to delve into um, Shimshon with the benefit of Rabbi Hatton as well. Have a wonderful week. Thank you for joining us and keep walking in the ways of the prophet.